With COVID-19 lockdowns, quarantine requirements, and work-from-home arrangements still prevalent, how will the pandemic impact the future of public transport, and what lessons can policymakers in Asia learn from global experiences within the sector? In this podcast, we take a look at what's happening outside the region with Greg Marston of the University of Leeds Institute of Transport Studies, who describes travel developments in the United Kingdom. He details COVID-19-era working pattern shifts, commuter behavior, and the implications for the economics of public transport and public policy, including key takeaways for Asia's cities. Hi, Professor Marston. Thank you for joining Asia's Developing Future. Can you start by explaining how people's travel behavior has changed in the United Kingdom since the COVID-19 outbreak? In the UK, the first wave began in March 2020, and then we had a second wave in the autumn, which led to a set of restrictions that were temporarily released in the run-up to Christmas. And then right the way through April, we've begun to see a more steady and one-directional release of restrictions. Before the pandemic, the primary work behaviour was for people to not work from home at all. So 76% of people in our sample never worked from home. We had 4% of the population, and that was relatively static, who worked from home 100% of the time in pre-pandemic. That's now 38%. So this is a huge shift in terms of what people have experienced, but it's also a huge shift in obviously the organisational behaviours that have existed in order to promote this. And we can anticipate that they will continue to want to exert some of those rights to work from home if it suits them in the future. So this is a huge shift in terms of where economic activity is happening as well. It also has impacts on things like mode choice. What is the most noticeable change in travel behaviour adaptation? What's really interesting is the walking statistics. We've gone from 36% of our sample reporting walking at least three days a week to 56% by October 2020. So more people are walking regularly. I can't think of a public policy campaign that would ever imagine achieving this level of increase in walking over that kind of time period. What we can see very clearly was a huge spike in cycling in the first lockdown. We know that there's been more than a million new bikes bought. Bike servicing shops have been overwhelmed with demand, so there's a lot of people who are out and about cycling. That's certainly been a major area of investment and focus from the government as well. How has policy in the UK responded to this change? We also had um, very early in the pandemic an announcement of a new cycling and walking strategy, £2 billion worth of funding. That had already been announced. Um, There's a new body to oversee the quality of provision. What we saw was quite a lot of investment in emergency or pop-up active travel lanes and so on. The idea is that these get converted where they work into better quality facilities. This is, I think, part of a long-term shift. It's been supported by the increase in cycling and walking in the pandemic, so it's got more policy promise. But I think this was something which the government was keen to see happen anyway. How has demand changed for the public transportation? A story which I guess you will be familiar with is the much more significant impacts on public transport. Rail was much more heavily impacted than bus, so it's still only recovered to around about 45 to 50 percent of pre-pandemic traffic. Buses are currently around 70 percent, so we've always had a slightly higher return to bus use than we have to train use, but it still remains quite a challenging environment for trying to operate what were previously seen to be commercial services. How is the government supporting public transportation? We've had a number of policy announcements. 
first one was there's been £12 billion worth of support given to the rail network over the period of COVID. It's around about £8 billion more than would have been given if we hadn't had the pandemic. So hugely expensive services continue to run. I think one of the other things which has been really interesting is the recognition that actually our network was running over capacity. We had far too many trains. Um, there's a requirement for local authorities to develop a plan with bus companies if those bus companies want to continue to receive COVID recovery grants. It's a very difficult period at the moment. The bus companies are receiving significant subsidy to continue to run the services without having overcrowding. Actually, the levels of capital in the private sector to invest in these kinds of buses is more limited. So I think it's an important time for a bit of stimulus spending on those kinds of things to ensure that we continue to accelerate that rather than having a bit of a lull in the system. To what extent has the government's perspective on public transportation shifted? Public transport has always been seen as a market good in the UK. We have obviously subsidised it, but just the extent to which the government has felt the need to support public transport as a socially necessary service for the small number of people who've had to rely on it um, throughout the pandemic has perhaps signalled a bit of a change in terms of what public transport is seen to be there for in the UK. We've also had some difficulties in making very rapid adaptations at different levels of government during the pandemic. So the crisis has revealed a little bit about where in the system we have skills and capacity. Um, We've had quite a lot of policy change, but most of it I would describe as an acceleration of previously planned policies rather than a radical departure. What is the long-term implications of this and how is the UK government restructuring transport industries? We don't need to invest so much in terms of capacity enhancement if people aren't going to be returning to the offices to work quite so much. There's talk of rebalancing that investment into electrification of those parts of the network that we haven't already electrified. Good for decarbonisation, but also provides capacity benefits over running a diesel network anyway. So there are some elements of rebalancing. Some of the investment in the buses, which I've signalled, is going over into electric and hydrogen bus investments. That's decarbonisation. Do you think the UK government will take this opportunity and decarbonize the transportation system further? You know, as we've been opening up the economy, is the decarbonisation plan going to capitalise on that? Are we going to try and get things back to normal for other reasons? And that itself would not be positive for decarbonisation. So I don't think we really know what the government's response to this is going to be. So the response could be to try and encourage everyone to get back to the offices, to get back to commuting. I think this feels like the wrong direction to me. It also doesn't feel like the way that employers and employees are going to work. What will the future of work and transportation look like? I think we're going to see a reduction in the frequency with which people who can uh, work from home do go into offices. We've still got really quite large uncertainty about the impacts of COVID-19 on behaviour. And I think in particular, the return to work is the big vector that we're not sure about at the moment. It's revealed this massive latent demand for active travel, particularly walking. That feels like something we need to capitalise on. But I think from a climate perspective, we've got to use that as an opportunity to try and cut emissions. I think 20% reductions in travel demand are difficult outcomes for the public transport industry, and it's going to continue to require a rethink of the relationship between government and uh, the private sector and what public transport is actually there for. I think we ought to be planning to rethink the peak. Let's be clear, the public transport system that we had before the pandemic was expensive, it was overcrowded, and it was unreliable. 
do we want to go back to the way it was before or should we be rethinking the way in which the peak works? And I think if we're going to have more working from home, we've really got to think about the land use interactions and the rebalancing of suburban areas and central areas. To wrap up, what lessons can we draw for Asian cities? So what lessons can we draw for Asian cities from our UK data? The pandemic will have impacted society in very uneven ways, and that's true everywhere. Those people with most choices, technology to work from home, cars that enable them to isolate from others while travelling, will have had better outcomes, and it's worth trying to understand just how significant those differences are. I think there'll be massive contextual differences here, for example in attitudes towards overcrowding and mass wearing, but also in terms of the options which people have to shift to. So there's a much greater prevalence of use of powered two-wheelers in some Asian contexts which we wouldn't see in the UK. But how do we respond to this? Everywhere, roads were over-congested beforehand in our major cities, and yet running a better public transport service with fewer passengers will be tricky. So it's about taking the time to make sure that the response is right, that we rebalance uh, the types of transport services that we provide without cutting them too quickly, because it's going to take quite a while for people to readapt to travelling in crowded conditions as the pandemic eases. This has been Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. See the show notes for the transcript and related material. For more information about us, please visit adbi.org.